Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I'm your host, Aliza Arıca. My guest today is Turka Sangaramorti, Professor of Anthropology at American University. We will be talking about her book, Landscapes of Care, Immigration and Health in Rural America, published recently by the University of North Carolina Press. Thank you very much, Turka, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's really um, exciting to be able to chat about the book. I'm really excited too. So we can go ahead and get started. Um, So you've been on our podcast before. Maybe, you know, we have quite a bit of convention to start our episodes by learning how our authors arrived at their projects. But right from the preface, especially when it comes to this book, it seemed to me like the book was a long time in the making from your personal history with immigration politics to your concern with the location of anthropological knowledge. So instead, I want to ask you, how did these concerns inform this book or lead you to this book? Um, This is a really interesting question to start with, at least for (laughs) me. I'm glad that you picked up on it. Um, So this is technically my third book in the order that I'm working on. I was working on two books simultaneously. That's why I'm saying this is my third book and not my fourth. But um, it's, it's interesting because I think for me, um, this book is deeply personal because the topics are deeply personal. And I think two things about this book that I want to kind of um, kind of preface is that one, I think it's, it's in some ways, some of my boldest writing in book form. Um, I think I have become much more unencumbered by certain kinds of conventions within my own disciplines, plural. Um, But also what, what people normally sort of reveal, right, in their writing. And I think public writing for me has really helped me free up my own sort of sense of 
what I'm supposed to say and what I'm not supposed to say and how I sort of think about, um, you know, what I'm writing about. So I think all of these things have been helpful. I think this is one of my boldest, in some ways for me, bravest pieces that I've written. Um, So, and that comes out of two different things, which you um, just alluded to. So one is that it's, it's, it's sort of a coming out story. It is a coming out story. Um, I've been, I've been, you know, my career um, now is in its essentially 23rd year. Um, So moving into, you know, my second um, decade. And I don't think I've ever revealed the fact that I myself am an immigrant refugee. And so this was something that was a long time in sort of admitting um, to, I guess, colleagues and to the wider public. Um, So that's one thing. The second thing is that I've I've been deeply sort of encumbered of what that means to be an immigrant working on immigration studies within anthropology in particular, but also public health. Um, I have never felt like I fit in, and I talk about quite a bit of this in the preface itself. Um, Never really felt like I fit in. Um, I felt that I saw things very differently. Um, I didn't necessarily, it's not that I necessarily disagreed with some of these arguments that exist in our discipline about immigration and health, but my experiences were very different. And oftentimes the people that I worked with, their experiences were different. Um, So it was always this tension that I had that I wanted to really sort of explore in this book itself. Um, and it took me quite a bit of time to get there. Um, so it is about, uh, in some ways, you know, you asked, you know, how are these concerns informing this book? And I think it's about wanting to write my own history in some ways, even though this is not my particular history. But I wanted to tie in my own history of getting to this point about talking about, you know, racism about space, um, about time. Um, and I wanted to bring a very different perspective to it um, in a way that I don't think that I was able to before, or I never really felt comfortable doing so before, especially in book form and in academia. The second thing I think also is that oftentimes these, what I mean by that is that oftentimes these stories are about suffering poverty, despair, death. And it's not to take away from that focus, but it's also about what living in hope also means and how people resist in everyday kinds of ways. Um, That is my story. And that's always, those are always the things that are very apparent to me in working with immigrant communities. Um, I have also, um, I'm also a brown immigrant, um, and my entry into work on immigration in academia um, was by happenstance, Um, and I have worked with Haitians and other Black immigrants since the very beginning, and there was a lot of similarities between 
my experiences growing up um, and my experiences, frankly, in the academy um, and their experiences and very much around class and race rather than this notion of legality or belonging in that sort of territorial way. Um, and, and I think that's also something that um, I don't think really fits into the dominant narrative of how it's talked about. And, and this is some of the things that I had been long, you know, for a long time I had been thinking about and wanting to write about. And so um, this is the lens that I think um, and these concerns are the things that I think inform this book. Um, yeah, thank you very much for sharing this with us. And I think, you know, you becoming unencumbered in these ways really brings a kind of a vulnerability to the book that makes it really special, at least to me as a reader. Um So, you know, we've talked a little bit about how the book goes beyond legalistic approaches to immigration. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the eastern shore of Maryland, where um, the book is based and how that place and people in that place in particular lead you to see care as a landscape rather than, you know, something happening within these legal frameworks. Exactly. Um, no, this is such a great question. Um, it, the Eastern Shore of Maryland, it's its really a fascinating place and space. Um, I can tell you a little bit about what attracted me to the Eastern Shore, if that helps a little bit. Um, before coming to academia, I actually did my, I did an, um, what one many academics would call an unconventional postdoc. Um, I went to work at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Um, much of my work was on disease. I'm an infectious disease specialist. I'm also an epidemiologist, and I did disease outbreak investigations and tried to merge anthropological approaches to how we think about disease um, and outbreaks. And much of the work that I did at CDC was in highly rural contexts, places that I had never really thought about, um, places that I had never really spent very much time on, and places, frankly, that I never learned about um, in all of my years of training. Um, especially in the U.S., and I never really saw the connection. I was never really taught the connection or uh, taught to think about the connections between rural landscapes in the U.S. and rural landscapes elsewhere, and I just never really connected the two in any real way. When I was a postdoc in these spaces, this was really the first time that I had started thinking about it, but these are disease outbreaks. I didn't really have a lot of time to think. I didn't have a lot of, you know, that kind of mental space that's offered in academia to really sort of conceptualize it, to really process it. Um, I knew there was something there uh, that I was really kind of curious about and disturbed by, but I didn't know what it was. So when I came to academia, when I started working at the University of Maryland, a lot, I, you know, I had wanted to focus on immigration. I had wanted to focus on health and racism. Um, Much of the work in places like Maryland, like many other places, um, the work is really in urban areas. So in Maryland, it was really focused on D.C. There's 
a lot of work on DC. Even in public health, there's work on immigration and health in DC. Um, and I really wanted to do something that was different. And Maryland, most people associate it with DC, but Maryland, much of Maryland is rural. It, it The Western part of Maryland is part of Appalachia. Um, the Eastern part of Maryland was not connected to Maryland until the 50s when the bridge went up. Um, it is very much a rural space, um, like much of America is rural. And it it is, you know, it's just about an hour and a half or so from D.C., our capital. Um, it is very close to Baltimore as well, around the same distance. It's very isolated. It's rural. It's politically conservative. Um, there are places there where you do not get a cell signal. There are places there where you just feel like you're completely isolated and very, at least for me, um, it's so different. Um, and I think space, and I know we'll talk about space uh, throughout this conversation, but this notion um, of space is really something that hit me very quickly when I went there. Um, and oftentimes it's about isolation, but it's also about how people connect in these vast areas, right, of, of, of very little. And um, so this notion of space, I think, helped me formulate these, you know, think about this, this concept of landscaped rather than any kind of a formal sort of specific system and how that kind of comes about. And I know we'll talk more about it, but I think what really helped me, I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is saying that I kind of thought of these things by myself, which I did not. And I want to foreground that first and foremost. And I talk about this pretty much in anything that I've published on this is really, I went there, I was an immigration scholar, I was a public health scholar, um, I had done work in the field and in rural spaces, and I went there, and I was told I didn't know anything. I was told to come back when I finally figured out what, how to foreground this notion of rurality. If I didn't understand this notion of ruralness, then I would never understand immigration. And I had no idea what that meant. I was very confused. I didn't know what that had to do with immigration. And people were very specific. People were very insistent um, that in order to understand immigration, I needed to understand ruralness and rural health in particular and how those things are absolutely could not be decoupled from each other. Um, And I think this is the thing that really forced me it wasn't immediate. It took years to really sort of conceptualize what that what that what that meant. And I think this book, in some ways, is my own journey of discovery of of something that I had not been taught, I had not ever thought about. Um, and it was it was it was a a blunt forcing of of my own blind spots and I think in many ways academic blind spots and practical blind spots about how things actually worked, how people actually care for each other um, and and what is happening in very much much of our country. Um, and I think that's the part 
to me, that was a huge learning curve for me. And it's, it's also taught me a lot of humility, right? In a sense that I really didn't know very much, <laughs> um, even though I had been working in this for, for a very long time. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, urban spaces, and, but I think there's an underlying thing. Much of our education comes from an assumption, right? That this is really, that really applies to sort of urban space. That was definitely my education. Um, and I couldn't even figure it out when I was working in rural spaces, like I said, as a postdoc. I just didn't have a lot of time to think about it. I knew something was different, um, but I just didn't know what it was. It wasn't sort of an immediate thing. And um, starting field work, it took several years for me to kind of understand what people were talking about. Right. Yeah, I want to continue more on this you know, unencumbered critique of the city-centric approaches to immigration. Um, so, you know, you really draw our attention to rural spaces as not just sites of immigration, but globalized sites of rapid immigration. So what can the pace of immigration and the spatial connections it forges tell us about rural healthcare? So I think there's I think there's a couple of things, you know, I think the first thing in immigration literature that you come across is this notion. There's a couple of things. So I'll start with this first. Oftentimes we we discuss the fate of immigrations or immigrants in this very sort of static and oppositional terms. Right. Are they going to be integrated? (laughs) Will society embrace or integrate them? Or will society reject and push them out? Um, And I think, you know, in some ways, I think some of us know that this isn't necessarily black and white, but I think it's really hard for us to understand the specific kinds of nuances of how this unfolds, right, in everyday life. What does this even mean? Um, And I think in rural Maryland and much of rural America, right, there are these really rapid demographic shifts. And these are demographic shifts that we have not really paid attention to, even though we should. The, you know, immigrant lives and these relationships, these community relationships in rural spaces, places where people have not really had to think about differences in this particular way or in a more complex way, um, it's really tenuous. These are not either or assumptions. It's not about embracing or rejecting or pushing people out or integrating them. It's, It's really about, you know, the various ways in which this plays out. It's really complicated. And rural spaces are incredibly complicated spaces. We tend to think of them as very simple, and they're not. Um, So I think that that's something that I also grappled with um, in thinking about what that means in terms of healthcare. And healthcare is really complicated in these spaces. Um, and it's complicated because I think this notion, we, t- we I think, sometimes forget this notion of healthcare um, is really, we assume that it's physically bounded, right? That these are actual 
things <laughs> that we can see and feel and um, and sort of experience in in a particular way. Um, and when we do that, right, when we think about healthcare as as sort of you know, a set of physical sort of buildings or structures, or even the relationships that happen in these particular spaces, um, they become sort of disconnected. They're a little bit ahistorical. They're a little bit politically neutral, as if that's not really, um, and, and then the, the very much it's tied to these formal um, ways of thinking about things or tied to institutions. Um and so I think rural health systems, right, if we can call them even the formal ones, they're incredibly, <laughs> there's very little there, unfortunately, right, in these sort of physical, institutionalized, formal spaces. They're very loosely integrated. They're ill-coordinated. Um, the physical sort of looks like public hospitals or community health centers, local health departments, clinics. Um, and that's just a very small, if you think about an iceberg, that's the part that you see. What you don't see is that there are literally a handful of people that are offering any kind of semblance of what, it's not healthcare, it's care. Um, and this isn't, I mean, sometimes we kind of get to it in the literature as safety net. Um, but it doesn't, it's not adequate to describe what is actually happening in much of America, right? I want to sort of highlight, this is what I'm saying. I think a focus on the rural really helps us understand what is unfolding in much of our country, regardless of where we sit. And I think these patchworks or these temporary improvised care that I talk about in the book is actually the default in many of her, you know, many places in the U.S. in general. So I, I, I think this rapid immigration, um, these rural sort of contexts um, really help sort of re-envision this notion of health care, but also this notion of system. You know, the, there's the standardized tropes that we understand, you know, like these bounded singular entities. And I think sort of Re-envisioning that as a landscape um, emphasizes these relationships, the way that these relationships assemble, the various different exchanges that are happening, both formal and informal. And it, frankly, I think it helps us understand the violence in which this actually occurs. Um, our healthcare system, however you want to think about a system or healthcare, is incredibly violent. Um, it is exclusionary, it's racist. And I think in the places where I worked, this was even more so, I think, than much of the places that I had worked before. So landscape is not, I'm not saying that it, it, it excludes these formalized pathways, it does, but it, but it also encompasses these other invisible sites where people are engaging with each other, where people are providing care, and these are social relationships of care, right? That is not necessarily about health. Um, 
so I really want to move away from this notion that immigrant health is limited to these formal um, pathways, but really to think about landscape as privileging how immigrants and how rural residents actually think and their knowledge and their experiences around space and place and time and relationships. Um, and I think that it really, in, in this way, I think it really discloses some of the violence of this, this racial capitalist logic that is very much a part of our immigration policy it's very much a part of our health policy. Um, and it's about also how institutional care, especially around health, really is structured in this country. Um, and I think that by paying attention to how people navigate this um, and how they do it in non-formal ways um, and how they enable care and aid to care for themselves and each other um, is really important. And I think, I think this is, you know, I think there are quite a few scholars, especially black feminist Marxist geographers, um, think about this as, as very much a political struggle. And so this is part of what I saw and how I interpreted things in this space. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, thank you very much for this very rich answer. And I love what you said about, you know, that we that maybe it's not fair to focus on healthcare, but it's care uh, as a broader um, practice maybe at stake. And, you know, for me, like one of the chapters that really struck me was the one on Band-Aid care. So I'm wondering if you could expand on what you just explored and tell us about what this metaphor of Band-Aid did for these broader landscapes of care within these broader landscapes. And... Um, I'd also love for you to talk about the possibilities and relations that Band-Aid care can open up beyond being quick, quick fixes to temporary problems. So, you know, like I'd love for you to talk about also like the hope and possibility portion um, of the work that you alluded to at the beginning of our conversation. Um, no, I really, <laughs> I really appreciate it. So, um it's again, um, Band-Aid care wasn't anything that I came up with. <laughs> it, it actually, I start this chapter um, that you're alluding to with a conversation that I had with a care provider who first um, talked about it. Um, and it was interesting. It, it's, a, it's, it's something that unfolded 
in his office after work. Um, I was finally able to kind of talk to him um, after really failing many times to kind of be able, he was so busy as many of these providers that I worked with are. And he talked about a, a, a very young farm worker um, client that had come in. Um, he had no idea. So he started doing these tests, finds out that he has um, diabetes, um, uncontrolled diabetes, um, and wanting to get him the best care possible. And how that is actually not something that's encouraged um, by both um, by both um, insurance companies, right? These larger structures that determine actually how one gets medical care in this country. And he says, in, I mean, he's, he was exhausted and talking about it. And he said, you know, um, no matter what I do, I just feel like I'm putting Band-Aids on things that need stitches. Um, and I didn't think too much of it because that's sort of a common phrase, right? But I, I think in, um, in thinking more and more about it, I, I wanted to sort of understand what this Band-Aid care was um, through what I was studying, these recent transformations, um, both for healthcare reform in this country, but also in the context of immigration reform. They're happening together, right, in this country. Um, but also thinking about how rural health systems um, – what that even meant, these issues, longstanding issues of under-resourced care in rural systems, but also some of the things that people have talked about within anthropology and health studies in terms of the political and moral economy of health. Um, and so that's how I started really thinking about Band-Aid, not as a passing sort of comment, but actually something to, to analyze. So Again, it's the metaphor, right? Band-Aid, it's temporary. It's something that we just sort of use to immediately kind of cover up something. Um, it's very provisional. Um, and what what that person was saying, that care provider was saying, is that it's just something that's temporary, but we really need more Um to, to think about what is actually happening in these spaces and um, not just about immigrants, but what's happening in rural health as well. And so um, I think this is, this is sort of what this, you know, what this, it, this chapter is really about. And I talk about how it unfolds in the field. What does that actually mean? Um, and to your second part of your question, so it's 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 existing care, right? This is this is it is literally band-aid care. And I talked a little bit about, you know, this notion of of how critically inadequate our health systems are, regardless of where it is, but it's also very much prevalent in rural spaces. So other people use this notion of bastardized care. That's another way people talked about it. Um, and over the years, I think I realized that um, uh, what I was seeing in the field, was very much informal, right? That much of healthcare that I saw or care in general were very much not just medical, but also non-medical forms of care. 
um, even in medicalized spaces like clinics, right? Bartering, how people barter for things. So in these spaces, it's not really cash transactions in the way that we think about healthcare, where you go and you, you know, put your insurance card down or, or pay for, you know, your copay or full whatever. Um, it's there. But people also bartered for care with vegetables, with the things that they sort of made a living with in these spaces. It's, it, you know, rationing, you know, um, providers hoarded medicine to be able to give them out for free. Um, just kind of turning the other way, this notion of willful noncompliance that I talk about, um, ignoring things and, and looking away and maybe doing things that are not that they're not actually supposed to do, um, but also the kinds of interactions that these things create, which is, you know, um, goodwill, uh, kind of social and moral capital, right? Um, and I think these are the ways that immigrants and providers negotiate healthcare and other kinds of support in, in, in spaces which, you know, economically, it's extraordinarily constrained. It's racially charged, um, especially when things are sort of, again, this, this, it's about legality, right? What is legal? What are they legally supposed to do and what are they not supposed to do? And sometimes even these legal formal pathways do not allow for the kind of care that they want to give. And providers are also very much caught in this. Um, And so I, I want to, I wanted to understand how People viewed Band-Aid care as a temporary temporary state, but it's also permanent. Um, And this is how life is. It's a series of Band-Aids. But the Band-Aid itself isn't about quick fixes, but it's really about how to address broader long-term needs. Um, And I think it's Band-Aid care is what makes life possible. It, it, it is what is generative, right? It's, it's a form of, like I said, it's a politics. It's, it's a form of, of sustained resistance. Um, and I wanted to kind of conceptualize it. You know, anthropology, we talk about these things. It's not, we don't talk about Band-Aid care, but we talk about some other things that might be helpful. Um So I think in terms of therapeutic itineraries, for instance, you know, how people like navigate these uh, ill-coordinated kinds of uh, care. Um, There's also, again, the literature on safety nets that kind of gets to the heart of this. Um, It's also about like how people sort of survive. in terms of how they cooperate with each other in very sort of uncertain circumstances. So it builds on a lot of this. Um, But I also thought it was unique enough to be able to analyze, um, you know, in in a particular kind of environment, which I don't know necessarily if we think about those things in the U.S. Um, I think we think about these things in global spaces and places outside of here. And I wanted to bring it back to a specific way that people are able to to be able to care for each other um, in places that are extraordinarily difficult to navigate, um, especially in this sort of policy environment that that 
is happening in these very conservative spaces. Yeah, and I think you really bring attention to that in a very powerful way. And your response just now, you know, made me think about something you said earlier about how care uh, healthcare is not this bounded thing, right? Like as I read the book, and especially as I read um, the people who are maybe um, you know, occupying in between positions in community clinics or, you know, rural physicians, I kept thinking about like, okay, who's responsible, you know, like where does healthcare reside? You know, who, who takes responsibility for what's not being provided to people? And I love what you mentioned about existing care, right? What exists? Um, so yeah, I'm curious about, how your engagement with existing care and maybe these people who occupy, you know, positions in between help you grasp rural healthcare. And yeah, I'm curious about how also you collaborated with them or how you positioned yourself within existing forms of care. So again, you know, I went into the field. This kind of is a, is a continuation of how I started this. I went into Again, I am someone who is trained very much to think about healthcare in these formalized physical spaces. Most of us are, um, even those, especially those of us who actually work in this space. Right? It's very much um, it's sort of ingrained. So when I went there, I started with clinics, um, hospitals, right? These very formalized systems. And I spent quite a bit of time talking to people who work in those spaces um, and, and, and what those spaces sort of, what, what those spaces actually look like and how, how kind of care unfolds there. But what I realized as soon thereafter is that care was very limited in those spaces and even these providers that I worked with, many of them, um, that was only one form of care was, was, was within the sort of formalized realm. Um, and I had to follow them out because they were moving in and out of both the formal and the informal. So it wasn't something that I sort of saw and thought about, but it was actually what was how they lived both their professional and personal lives. And that forced me to also really rethink, you know, where sort of care happens and how it happens. Um, I think a lot of providers are very much open about what they do, why they're committed. Um, and they're also very much open about the kind of constraints that they themselves face in providing care, actually doing their jobs um, and how restrictive it is, how surveilled they are, um, how they're told to stay in their lanes, what they're told to do and not to do, right? This is the way that the system sort of surfaces. It That's where it's visible, but otherwise it's not. You, you ask like, where does, who's responsible? There are these ways that, that, that it, it, it kind of takes control because you see it in the forms of a control to keep it exclusionary, to keep it racist, right? Um, and to keep it commercialized. But 
how people sort of get around that um, and how people actually provide the care and how people talk about it is what was so interesting to me. Um, and it's also just very much, I mean, this also, it's interesting because I had done this work before COVID and during COVID was the time that I actually wrote the book. And it was interesting because during COVID, I think, hopefully, um, I mean, I, I teach about history of pandemics, so I, this is probably not true anymore. But in the, in those moments, it was, we finally kind of saw how rural spaces were completely left behind or completely being left behind. The closure of hospitals, you know, essential workers, right? And, and I think it's, it's really interesting. We saw a little bit of that. Um, but this has been going on for decades. Um, and whether or not we enact, you know, the ACA or any kind of, you know, massive health policies where people think things are great in rural spaces, that these health policies somehow make things great because that's what they were meant to do. They don't. And, and the interesting part is that people who live in and work in these areas, especially providers, have always known that nothing would change the needle. Um, that this never really gets to the heart of what they actually need and what they want and how they live their lives. And I think that is the part of this book is that, you know, going back to what people taught me, why are these things connected? Why, what does rurality have anything to do with immigration? And it's this notion that rural spaces have always had to get by. Um, there are always these spaces where things are incredibly hostile and exclusionary and depleted and exploited. Um, so it's not just about people, it's about places as well, right? And so when this happens, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm definitely not painting a perfect picture. There is there's a, a tremendous amount of oversight and struggle, but there's also hope. And, you know, I there's also this notion of that, that, We've always had to care for each other. So whether it's immigrants or not, it doesn't matter. We're always going to care for each other because no one else cares for us. Um, and the formalized system doesn't work here. It doesn't work in the same way. Um, and so you move in and out of it quite rapidly and very smoothly. And much of the care and much of the way that, that these relationships are built are often outside of these formal spaces. Um, and I think that's that's, I have a tremendous amount of respect for providers. It's not that difficult for me because I am also a public health practitioner. I, you know, I'm also someone who has learned to take critique more seriously because I actually work in these spaces. I, I don't sometimes wear my anthropology hat. Um, I've been in careers where I don't, I don't have the luxury of critiquing um, just because it's critique. I, I am, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to be in these spaces and to understand the restrictions under which you work and to be able to critique. And so some of this is, is really sensitive because what some of these providers are doing is considered illegal in some ways, right? Um, they can be reprimanded. They can lose their licenses. Um, but this shows you, you know, how these systems actually work. And 
they're not really meant to provide care in any sort of sustained or way. It's it's really about extraction. It's about money. <laughs> it's about exploitation. Um, and when you refuse these things, even at a cost, at a high cost to yourself, um, that's where I think this is about sort of a politics in itself, right? Uh, the fact that people are foregoing the fact that this is a, a commercial transaction, um, that it's more than that, right? It's more, it's, it's about, you know, it's, it's, it's a deeply sort of ingrained um, social relation. And to think about care or medical care in that way is really odd, but that's what's happening here, that it's not just sort of a transaction between insurances and institutions, but rather how people actually relate to each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think throughout the book and also throughout our conversation, you really you know, do a wonderful job in showing the showing how this is actively produced through specific spatial relations or temporal relations that are um, forged uh, by intention. Um, and, you know, this might seem unrelated, but I think it is very much related. So one thing I really thought made care come alive as a landscape were, was the use of images throughout the book, specifically, you know, the visuals of science and clinics, food, everyday labor, and more. And I know this will sound like I didn't read the book and I just looked at the pictures, but, you know, I really think it, it uh, completes this understanding of a landscape. So I'm curious about whether you considered how places look or feel as part of making care a landscape? This is such an interesting question. Um, and I had to think about, you know, when you were talking, it was interesting because um, I, you know, my last book is on methods. <laughs> I'm someone who also teaches methods, right? I teach students how to actually conduct ethnographic research. And it's interesting because I'm also very much a visual learner and I use imagery quite a bit and visual sort of uh, ways of learning in the way that I teach. Um, and it's interesting because when I teach methods, especially in my methods class, I use a lot of urban imagery to help students sort of understand participant observation or... Yes, like what to pay attention to. And it's often urban landscapes or urban spaces, right? Because there's so much there. These are the prompts that I use. There, because there's so much there. There's the crowd, there's the noise. Even if it's a still picture, there's no you can you can you can just just by how congested things are, you can you can sort of understand what the noise level is or the crowd or you know, a lot of vehicles or the lack of space. Um, so your question was really interesting to me because, you know, it's, it's my own sort of, I think this is, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, right? Um, but rural spaces, we think about them as lacking, right? These things, um, the noise, the crowd, 
the lack of space, um, that there's this sort of notion of isolation. And it's funny because even in these urban like imageries that I use as prompts to help students think about what to write down and how to think about observation and how to train themselves, I always say, you know, what is not here? Pay attention to that. But I myself, I think in some ways, thinking about the rural, right? These are incredibly vast landscapes. There is sometimes what we call like, there's nothing, literally. But what does that nothing mean, right? And I think that is the thing that really struck me is that what what is the nothing? It is filled with things, right? That we just do not see or hear um, or taste or smell. Um, so it's 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 a sort of you know reconceptualization. It's it is about sights. It's about sounds. It's about space. It's about how you feel in the space what this vastness sometimes actually does for you, how it makes you feel. There's this sort of notion of nothing. And I think this is the very thing that people in in my field site actually talk about. What does it mean to be a place with nothing? What does it mean to be a, you know, a place and a, and a people like left behind? Um, there are also this, these notions of dilapidation, right? Things kind of falling apart. Um, but there's also these these intense sort of senses of hunger and thirst and sweat and smell. Um, it is incredibly spatial. Um, and I think that this is the thing that for me, it's hard to describe <laughs> without the visual. And I think that's why, um, you know, I try to do it in words, right? So there's this, um, I want to just kind of, if it's okay, if we have a, a, a few seconds, there's a field note excerpt that I included um, just to kind of help visualize, but I also use a lot of visuals here. So like there's um, there's something in the book, I forget which chapter it's in, uh, but this is part of my field notes. These are the things that I think it's really hard <laughs> because there's literally nothing in this space, but, but there's so much more. So I say scorching, this is part of my field notes, scorching heat unbearable humidity, hollowed out yellow school buses sitting in the middle of watermelon fields like errant sunflowers or dandelion weeds, the stench of crab chum and chicken manure, shoulder pain, skin blisters, inflamed rashes, eating cabrillon sauce, which is stew goat, with compa music blaring in the background, Trump pens, make America great again, lawn signs, well-weathered homes among lollipop, la bali, pine forest, and the long stretches of time and place holding still and quiet. Memories of summer as scattered plots, unpredictable, but somehow certain. There's literally nothing there, right? But there's so much in these spaces. It's just the things that we don't often see. It's not in your face. And I think that's sort of, for me, that was, that was the the power of what it was like to um, often live and spend a lot of time in these spaces that I had never really thought about in any other way as if, like, you know, many urbanites, it's just fly over country with a lot of land um, and emptiness. So um, I wanted to capture it in some ways visually, um, but hopefully with words as well, too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think you've done a wonderful job in doing that. Um, at least as a reader, I really appreciated it. Um, so as we come to the close of our episode, I will break question again. Uh, so I usually end episodes by asking what comes next, but I know you've been working on multiple projects simultaneously. So my question is, what has been brewing alongside this book? So I... Um... I was writing two books simultaneously, which I would never recommend to anyone. <laughs> uh, but this is, I think, in some ways, um, you know, for me, writing is is has always been a solace. Uh, it's it's a way to sort of turn inward and to find calm. Um, it's taken me a very long time to get to that space, um, and so during COVID. Um, I was living and working in Ethiopia and Addis, where I still am. And um, living through COVID as well as the civil war there, um, and it was extraordinarily stressful. And I turned quite a bit to writing, and I think my writing, in many ways, has changed. And I was working on two. I I have been working on two books simultaneously. So this one, um, but also um, a book uh, or a manuscript. Um, on oral histories of, um, I, you know, I work on HIV um, and oral histories of, of African-American women, um, older African-American women in the D.C. area. Um, and again, writing those two books together because they're so different, um, I think was really helpful. It helped me write, I think, in some ways, in a more accessible way, this book, even though this is more of a conventional academic book, um, and the other one is not. Um, but I think that those two forms of writing helped um, to also formulate um, a lot of the influence of, you know, Black feminist scholars, geographers, um, historians in this book as well, and really trying to kind of break away from sort of standard ways that we think about immigration and health. So I think working on the two of those things together and also being in a very different place, um, not being in the U.S. was also really helpful. Um, so I think that that's where, you know, I think hopefully that book will also um, see publication soon um, and I think it's interesting because, uh, um, I'm also, I still live in Ethiopia, even though I, um, I'm currently at American and I'm actually working, um, I'm also, um, doing refugee and migration work in the Horn of Africa, um, and focus specifically on responding. Um, my work for I'm working at the U.S. Embassy in Addis, um, helping to coordinate the response to the current Sudan um, crisis. So I think, in many ways, thinking this book has really helped open my eyes to a lot of ways in which global migration um, is unfolding. Um, and what global displacement and various different kinds of areas and regions around the world are very much connected. I know that these situations and politics are very different, um, but I think this book, in a, in a sense, has really helped me 
think about global migration in a very different way, even though it was entirely based in the U.S. Yeah, thank you very much for um, sharing all that and sharing how you think between different kinds of work, between writing and uh, working on the ground and so on. So thank you very much, Turka, for joining us in between all these projects and um, kinds of work you've been doing. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure uh, to talk to you and especially um, uh, someone who, you know, really picked up on, <laughs> on some of the more interesting parts of the book. So I really appreciate your uh, very astute attention to the very things that are important to me that I hope that people take from the book, too. Oh, I'm so glad. And I appreciate you writing this amazing book. <laughs> Thank you. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of landscapes of care, immigration and health in rural America, published in 2023 by the University of North Carolina Press, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.